departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appealed to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our sovereign king, Lord, that your promise to us, those of us who are in Christ, is that you will never leave us or forsake us, you will never let us go, nothing will separate us from your your love that we have in Christ. And Father, as we come before your word, we, we choose to submit to it. Lord, would you convict us now by your word? Lord, would you breathe your spirit into our hearts and transform us? more into the image of Christ. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking at this passage in Matthew, and the title for tonight is The Tyrant and the Baby King. Now, today's culture is strongly individualistic. We want to do things my way. We, want to, we feel very strongly about wanting to make our own choices and we don't like being told what to do. I mean, I can speak for myself here. Like if somebody tells me, do X, I, everything in me just wants to do the exact opposite, just because. I recognize selfishness in me. I recognize a self-centeredness deep in my heart. And many of us want to be masters of our own destinies. We want to make the rules. We want to make our own plans. We want to be our own kings. We want to build our own kingdoms for our own glory. And at the end of the day, we may not articulate it this way, but we want to be our own gods. I mean, just look at the type of people that our culture tends to elevate. And celebrities, uh, singers, actors, TV personalities. I mean, I mean, I can't think of anyone more self-centered than the Kardashians. And they like held up as, as the idol of what it is to, to be successful people in our culture. So this idea is, is, is held up for us to see and uh, for us to emulate. 
But you know what? There's actually nothing really new about any of these ideas. And since the Garden of Eden, our ancestors and the entire human race, we've always wanted to do our own thing. And Adam and Eve rejected God's word to them and instead raised their fists to their creator. And they followed after their own desires instead of after God's. And they fell for the serpent's temptation that they would be like God's if they ate all the forbidden fruits of the tree of, of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And from that point on, the story of mankind in Scripture shows the outworking of this path that Adam and Eve took. It paints, if we read from chapter 3 in Genesis, right on through the rest of the Old Testament, we get a bleak picture of destruction, of death, and hopelessness. And story after story in the Old Testament shows the heart of mankind that that we are murderous, that we perverted and we rebellious and self-centered and ultimately heading for self-destruction. But you know what? Thankfully, God didn't leave us in that mess. And throughout the Old Testament, despite this mess, we see God gently restoring his people, his sinful people, the nation of Israel, to himself and promising that there's going to come a day when he's going to send his Messiah and he's going to fix the mess and he's going to restore things to how they were. Eventually, God's promise was fulfilled. And in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, God's own son, the Messiah, came to earth, born a baby in Israel, and it's at this point where our passage of Scripture comes in and where the Gospel of Matthew picks up. So if we read earlier in in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 1, we see that Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem. And this is what was celebrated a couple of weeks ago during Christmas. King Herod was the the king of Israel at the time, and he's told of Jesus' birth by the wise men, or the Magi, and Rob preached about that a couple of weeks ago. And they tell King Herod, there's a baby born in Israel, he's the promised Messiah, He's, he's known as the king of the Jews. So when Herod discovers this, he is determined to hunt this baby down and have him killed, because he can't tolerate to have a rival claim to his kingship. So this whole passage of scripture and the sermon tonight is really a showdown between two kings. The one, a tyrant, and the other one, a baby. Now the tyrant Herod embodies the epitome of sinful man, self-centered bent on destruction and hopelessness, while the king baby Jesus is God incarnate himself, come to rescue man out of his mess and offer us incredible hope. So the main idea of this sermon is because God is our sovereign king, in Christ there's always hope. Because God is our sovereign king, in Christ there's always hope. 
I want to unpack this in three ways, three points. First point is God's sovereign plan. Second point is the insignificant baby king. And the final point is our eternal hope. So let's get into it. God's sovereign plan. So I want to read again from verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all, male, all the male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So we see a Herod try to kill Jesus via the wise men, um, but his plan failed. The, the wise men were told in a dream that, uh, what Herod was actually wanting to do, so they decided not to go and return to Herod and tell him where Jesus was. They went off and, and uh, escaped him. So Herod realized he's been tricked. So he initiates plan B, and he, so he's thinking, okay, right, if these wise men aren't going to tell me exactly uh, the address of Jesus, I'm going to slaughter every kid in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, every baby boy. And that's what he does. And it's a brutal decree. Every boy who is two years old or younger must get slaughtered. So therefore, for him, he's, like, he's got it nailed down. Like There's no way Jesus can escape this. He's, he's, he's going to get killed. But we know that even Herod's plan B failed. Yeah, Mary and Joseph managed to escape Israel. And, um, and yeah, they, they, were, they got out of Herod's menacing reach. Now, if we look at this, take a step back. Okay, Herod, he thinks he's in control as the king. Okay, he's trying his best to eliminate Jesus from the picture. But actually... It's God who's really in control of the situation. And he's busy sovereignly directing all these unfolding events that we, we, we're reading before us. So knowing the coming danger that Jesus faces, God sovereignly intervenes. Verse 13, So it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. So because God sovereignly directs Joseph through an angelic visitation in a dream, he's able to escape to Egypt with Jesus and he avoids Herod. Okay, not only does God... Uh, sovereignly direct the situation and deliver Jesus from the danger, but actually we see that this event was prophesied in the Old Testament some 600 years before it even happened. Yeah, by a prophet Hosea. So it really just shows how sovereign God is. Yeah, he's not in, it's not as if he's in crisis management where he sees you know, Herod's about to kill his son and he thinks, oh man. I've got to make a plan. I mean, something is going to obstruct this, uh, my, my whole deal here. What do, I, what do I do now? Aha, let's intervene. No, no, no. It's, it's completely different, okay? God knew exactly what was going to happen before the creation of the universe. Because yeah, it's prophesied. It's preordained all the way back in the prophet Hosea. So let's look at this prophecy you know, from, from Hosea. 
And Matthew is quoting Hosea uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I call my son. That's, it's a reference to the Exodus, which is the event where God delivered his people Israel in the Old Testament out of slavery in Egypt. And so Matthew's trying to tell us something here. And now when Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament, now take note of this because there are three Old Testament prophecies in our passage. So we're going we're gonna to get to all of them. This is the first one. Okay, when, when New Testament, they quote Old Testament passages, what they, what it's, what they the New Testament writers use them, they use them like, like an internet hyperlink. Okay, where they just, internet, there's just one sentence and a, you click on it and it goes to a whole different page. This is what's happening here. So click on Hosea 11.1 1, and it takes us to, to a context about the Exodus. Now the connection to the Exodus story here is that back in the Exodus, there was a baby Moses who was rescued by a plan to kill him from Pharaoh and God sovereignly rescued Moses from that. In the same way, Jesus is rescued from being slaughtered to be put to death under Herod. Both of these guys, both Moses and Jesus, grew up to be deliverers of their own people. Moses leading the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt into his promised land, and Jesus leading his people out of bondage of sin and death into his kingdom and abundant life. Now another example in this passage which shows how sovereign and in control God is, is right at the end of the passage. When Herod dies, God tells Joseph that it's okay to go back to Israel. And he sends him another dream. But then he says, don't go back to Judah. Don't go, don't go back to Bethlehem where they used to live. You've got to go to the north of the country because Herod's son, Archelaus, is now the ruler and he's also hostile to you. So God sends another angelic dream to Joseph to tell him this. So, Instead of going, they come back to Israel, instead of going to Bethlehem, they go right up to the north of the country, to the Galilee, and settle in a town called Nazareth. So we can see here the sovereign God who's perfectly guiding events according to his purposes. We see these two kings working to achieve their will. Herod, who believes he's, he's mighty in his own sight, and he tries his best to snuff out this new baby King Jesus, and he fails. But in contrast to Herod, God, the sovereign king who has all things under his care and under his control, he is the one who knows the, the end from the beginning, who upholds the universe with the, the power of his word, and who will accomplish all his purposes. He will always bring to pass what he has spoken, and he does everything that he has purposed. And nothing can stop God. So he is the one behind the scenes orchestrating all of this in in spite of Herod's little tiny actions, which he thinks are significant, but in the light of God, is nothing. Now let's just look at this view of God. God is sovereign. I mean, that's incredibly comforting to us. I mean, In him, we find perfect security 
that he's in control. And he's going to fulfill his purposes regardless of what happens, all the chaos that's happening in his life. He, his plan is always going to get fulfilled because he is God. We don't have to worry and strive in our own strength. We can find rest in him and security in him that his sovereign hand is over us whatever turn our life takes. This is a great comfort to us. Okay, God is sovereign. The second point, the insignificant baby king. Okay, back to King Herod. Herod's the king of Judea. Now, interesting thing, he's not a, he wasn't an ethnic Jew. Okay, but he was an Edomite, which is one of the opposing tribes from across the river Jordan. His family had converted to Judaism, and he was appointed the king of the Jews by the Romans, who were the colonizers. Those are my ancestors. Okay? They were colonized, the, the, the Israelites, the, the Jews. And so Herod, because he was seen as a collaborator, was hated by the Jews. He was seen as a traitor. Um, and also, this guy was the most brutal man. I mean, I think even Pastor Rob mentioned he had his own, some of his own family members slaughtered, some of his own sons and one of his wives. Um, but he was also a great and extravagant builder. Now, I've been to Israel a couple of times, and I've seen structures that this guy, Herod the Great, built. I mean, if you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Temple's not there anymore, but the, the Wailing Wall is. That was the foundation uh, wall of the temple. And those blocks there, Herod the Great put there. And they're incredibly impressive. They're massive things. Hey, um, Masada, which is this desert fortress in, in the Judean wilderness. I mean, it's incredible like Roman engineering. There's a sauna and there's um, all these you know, beautiful buildings. That, I mean, it's over 2,000 years old. It's still, it's still there. Caesarea, I mean, there's so much of it. So he tried to make his mark on history by showing his greatness through these magnificent buildings. It showed his desire for earthly glory. He wanted to make sure that history remembered him. He wanted to be significant. He wanted to build a great name for himself. So he was powerful in his own eyes. He was self-important. So therefore, you can imagine how threatened he must have felt when he heard about the existence of a rival king. Okay, also called the king of the Jews. Direct claim to his own throne. He's already insecure that he's not quite accepted by the Jews. And now he has another king of the Jews. So it's a direct affront to his authority and his very existence. So you see, for him, he has to try. He has to eliminate Jesus. There's really no option for him. So I contrast this to Jesus. Okay, Jesus has just been born. A couple of days old, perhaps. A couple of weeks. He's helpless. He's weak. And in human terms, he's the complete opposite of Herod. But yet, he is the true king of Israel. Okay, God's chosen king. Now, there's a common theme in Scripture, and I love this. And this common theme is that, and it's throughout Old Testament and New Testament, is, is beautiful. Okay, that God raises the weak, raises up the weak to lead the strong. It's all over the place. And I think it reveals something of, of the heart of God. And look at this, 1 Corinthians 1, 
27, 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now just think about it. You know, only our God could send his son, the promised Messiah, the savior of the world, to this earth as a little baby boy. I mean, the very fact of the incarnation, okay, God becoming man in the person of Christ, God humbled himself, okay, but he left the glories of heaven, the courts of the king of the universe, and he became one of us. Now for me, like this is incredible news. You know, God doesn't wield his power over us like some tyrant and brutal dictator. That's not our, who our God is. Okay, God instead demonstrates his power through weakness and humility. Hey, Christ came as a baby, born in a stable, born, with, born in poverty, yet he's the king of the universe. Okay, in a similar way, God chooses people like you and me who don't necessarily have it all together. Hey, the weak, the broken, the outcast, the least, the lost, the lost. And he picks us up from the muck and the mire and the dirt. And he washes us with his water and his blood. And he seats us with him in heavenly places. Now back to Jesus. Hey, verses 22, 23. Okay. When Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. I see there's another prophecy being fulfilled here. And it's connected to what I've have just said about God coming in weakness to show his strength. Okay, this prophecy is that the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, there's not one specific prophecy uh, that, that shows this. I mean, Matthew's put it in inverted commas, but you can't turn back and, and find that actual quotation in the Old Testament. What, what he's saying, what he's doing is that he's giving us the gist of what many, many, a variety of the Old Testament prophets were saying about the Messiah, that he would be lowly and that he would come from the region of Galilee. Okay, Isaiah 9, 1-2 shows that the Messiah comes from Galilee, from the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is the same region as the Galilee. And Isaiah 53 describes the Messiah as, as not having much of a significant outward appearance. That he wasn't much to look at. That he wasn't very beautiful. He wasn't very handsome. Um, he was, you, if you passed him in a street, you probably wouldn't even kind of look back. He's just ordinary, ordinary bloke. Okay, Nazareth in particular is something of a, a backwater village. I mean, in the Gospel of John, so it says about John 1, 45. So it says, it says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
I mean, can you hear the, the mocking tone of that? I mean, I had to think, how do you translate this to an American context? So, yeah, I was thinking, it's, it's probably like saying, you know, he was from some, some hick town in Alabama, you know? Like, insignificant place, you know? I mean, <laughs> Alabama, <laughs> okay? Um, like, you're not from New York, not from California, okay? You're not from D.C., the important places of America. It's from the backwaters. Okay, Galilee was a mixed area. Judea was the region of the, where the pure Jews came from. Okay, Galilee, is, there was mixed races up there. Um, pretty much, they probably saw them as a bunch of rednecks. Not significant. This is the point that, that, that we're seeing here. Now, you see the paradox okay, between Herod and Jesus. Okay, Herod, he's a powerful king in human eyes. Okay, he loves the, the earthly trappings of power. He's an important man. He has got political power. He's got building projects which, which boast of his honor. He's feared. He's ruthless. But yeah, he's the false king. He doesn't last forever. Okay, and verse 19, I love it. There's, it's a throwaway line. It just says, boom. When Herod died, and da-da-da-da-da, it carries on. When Herod died, just, oh, well, he's dead, just a human being, let's move on. Okay, but contrast us to the sovereign king of the universe. He's the true king of Israel, the helpless baby. Okay, this, this kid who was born in a grungy stable, he's the true king. Okay, this baby who grew up in this, insignificant hick town, he's the most important, actually. So you see, in God, and this is a great comfort to us, church, that in God, he chooses the seemingly foolish things to shame the powerful and the wise. I love that. That's our God. Okay, my last point. Eternal hope. So we've seen that Herod, this tyrant king, has has already left a legacy of destruction and terror and brutality. He's tried to kill the Messiah. He's had countless baby boys slaughtered. He's pretty much left people in tragedy and hopelessness. I mean, just imagine the mothers of the babies who were slaughtered. I mean, it's just their lives and their eyes ruined. I mean, nothing, no hope, tragedy. Yet, the baby King Jesus is completely different in what he offers. Instead of destruction and hopelessness, this king is bringing restoration and hope. In verse 18, now when I read it now, you're going to initially think, well, what on earth does that have to do with Jesus bringing hope? But bear with me, because it really does bring things into focus. Okay, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, this is another prophecy. This one from Jeremiah 31 15. And Matthew's using this prophecy to show how Herod's slaughtering of the innocents was prophesied in the Old Testament. So he's showing through this. There's weeping, sadness, and 
and seeming hopelessness. Now, do you remember what I said earlier about the, the hyperlink, linking us back to the Old Testament quotes? Well, here's, this is another example of it. So, pretty much, we need to go back to Jeremiah 31, and we need to see what Matthew's trying to tell us here. So, what's happening is that Jeremiah is describing that uh, Judah is about to be exiled. Okay, they've been sinning, they've been involved in uh, idolatry, sexual immorality, um, they have not conducted their affairs with justice in the land. So this is God's wrath coming down on, on the nation of Judah, and the, uh, the expression of their wrath is that they're going to be sent to Babylon in exile. They're going to be uprooted from their land and sent hundreds of miles um, to a foreign place for, for some time. And that's the hand of God coming upon his people. So the, the weeping and the mourning that's been described in this prophecy is for the children who are about to go into exile and captivity. But now, you know what? If you go back to Jeremiah 31, you see that it doesn't end there. If you carry on reading, it's fascinating. Okay, it's verse 17. This is two verses after this verse. This is what... This is what the Lord says. Is, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Okay, right in the midst of all this heartbreak and mourning and tears, boom, there's hope for your future. So what is this hope? Okay, and in that context, it was that God is going to restore his people Back to their land. They're not going to stay in Babylon forever. 70 years is going to pass and God is going to sovereignly raise up um, a king to, to restore the Jews to their own land. So there's hope. The exile is going to come to an end. It's not going to be perpetual. See, the same thing is happening here. Okay, there is mourning now for the babies who are being slaughtered by the tyrant Herod. But... Real hope has arrived and is being realized through the baby King Jesus. Okay, here is God's promised Messiah who has come to restore his wandering people from their mess. He's going to restore them back to their God. He's going to wipe away their sins and deal with their rebellion. The salvation is finally here. The Messiah, the promised Messiah, is finally here. And soon, this baby is going to grow up into a man, and he's going to die on the cross and rise again, and he's going to bear the just punishment of sin that we deserved. He's going to bear it on himself. And in return, those who believe are going to be, will be forgiven of our sins and restored to a right relationship with God and released into abundant life that starts now and lasts in him forever. And this is real hope. Now how completely different is this from Herod's reign of destruction and hopelessness? In Christ there's full restoration and a hope that is real and that is life-changing. I bring this all down to land. It's easy for us to look at Herod and say, what a 
dirty sinner. You know, what a tyrant. Yeah, just what a mess he was. And then just kind of step back and feel smug about the thing. You know what the reality is that we're not all that different from Herod. And maybe you're thinking, well, actually I am. I don't slaughter babies. Like, I'm not a tyrant. I'm not a power-crazy king. For sure. Maybe that's true. But that same desire that Herod had to usurp the baby king Jesus is something that is common to every single one of us, to all of mankind. In actual fact, it's common to us since the Garden of Eden where we've been holding up our fists to God and wanting to oppose and rebel against all the ways of God since that time. And it culminated in the crucifixion of Christ when sinful man finally got their hands on God incarnate and nailed him to death. That is the the ultimate expression of human rebellion against our Creator. This is a part of our sinful core that we want to oppose the true king that we want to be masters of our own destinies, we want to be our own gods and our own kings, and actually leave no room for the king to rule in our lives. Now, to rule in your own way and to have our own rules and to get on with life in our own controlled way, that probably sounds appealing. To, to, to a lot of us and in our culture. I mean, that, that's just how you know, we, we operate generally in, in the culture. Independently minded, we want to do our own thing. But this promise of power and meaning in this way is really hollow. Like Herod, we're going to come to nothing one day. Okay, our life is just one blip in the bigger picture of things. Okay, glory and power now on our own terms as, as gods and kings, independent of God as the king, really it leaves us hopeless. Because there's nothing within us that can give us any hope. Okay, on, on our own, really we're going to walk exactly the same path of Herod. End point of that is destruction and hopelessness. Maybe not even in this life. Maybe we'll be actually fine in this life. But in the next life, on our own, without Christ, we face the eternity in hell, separated from the Lord. So at the, ultimately, there's always destruction without Christ, even if it's not in this life. See, the truth is that hope can only come from something outside of us. There's nothing within us that can create it. And it's only in Christ where we find this true hope. Hey, because God is our sovereign king, in Christ there's always hope. Okay, like Herod, on our own, our plans ultimately come to nothing. Okay, they're futile, they're fleeting, they end in disappointment. But in Christ, 
We're called into God's sovereign plan, which he has predestined before the foundation of of the universe. And in him, we find perfect security, knowing that he is in control and that he is going to perfectly fulfill all the purposes that he has for us. Hey, like Herod, on our own, we think that power comes from building fancy buildings, building our own empires of wealth, of influence, of getting people to fear and respect us. But reality is, on our own, our empires are always temporary and human power will always fade away. But in Christ, God became weak in a helpless baby. Okay, the true majesty of heaven became nothing in order to save us. So he finds us at the depth of our weakness the heart of our sinfulness and our brokenness and in our mess and he raises us up from death into life and seats us, us, seats us with him in heavenly places. And like Herod, on our own, we run a hell-bound race. It leads to destruction. It leaves us empty and without hope. But in Christ. Because only he has come as the Messiah to die in our place for our sins and in return grant us complete forgiveness and abundant life that starts now, restored to our Father for eternity, we have incredible, true, and everlasting hope that does not spoil or fade. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good, that you are a good king who we can trust, who's sovereign, who's in control, who has not left us alone, but has come, has drawn near to us in Christ, who has picked us up from, from our sins, who has washed us clean and who has restored us to your presence. Lord, Holy Spirit, we, we realize now our need for you, Lord. Lord, we're we sorry for wanting to run ahead and, and do, do life on our own terms. And Lord, we turn to you and say, Lord, Lord we trust you as our king. We, we're tired of being our own rulers and we, we realize and admit that only, only you can, can really reign in our life. So, Lord, have your way, Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that you are never far away, that you are, are, are close to the weak, you are close to those who, who cry out to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your promise to us. We thank you for your word that uh, never returns void. And would you seal this, this truth in our hearts as we go out from this place. And we worship you as our, our sovereign king, but our, our humble and, and, and baby king, or king who came as a baby to save us. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.